so this next talk is a little bit of an experiment. Uh, when Steve and I were trying to put together the curriculum last summer, uh, anticipating uh, having this be the first year of the Clinton administration, uh, it seemed like a good idea. Uh, and uh, we thought we would try to do something different today. So I apologize to you in advance for uh, the question you'll probably get is, how is this relevant to my practice? It actually, I think, is in a lot of ways, but it'll be over the longer term. And as I'll try to get to you at the end, I think there are ways that your practice can have a big impact on this issue uh, as we move ahead. Um, my um, disclosures, in addition to being at the same university, I didn't see, I didn't disclose my uh, presence at uh, UCSD with Dr. Benson, but I should have. Uh, my apologies. Um, I'll talk a bit here about, I'm going to try to talk about some of the health effects related to um, climate change, uh, talk a little bit about some of the infectious diseases that will be disproportionately affected by this, and then talk about how some of these effects might be mitigated, uh, either by mitigating the climate change uh, issue or by mitigating some of the effects that the climate change uh, will drive. Um, we, have, we start with a multiple choice question, uh, and this uh, question is, warming climate may accelerate global pathogen spread by increasing geographical range of vectors that transmit pathogenic organisms, accelerate maturation of pathogens within a transmission vector, increase the number of flooding events, and may result in population displacement of people, uh, or as Dr. Dweck would suggest, uh, number five, all of the above. So. Come on, baby, light my fire. All right. So all of the above, you're, you're a very attentive audience. So um, you get an A in terms of your attentiveness this, this, uh, today. So I'm going to try to cover uh, this uh, in kind of four general areas. First, cover the issue of whether the world is warming, and then talk about what has become the most contentious political issue is, if it is, why is it warming? Uh, talk about uh, how it might affect human health, and then some of the things we might be able to do about it. So before I start out, I think it's important to make the point that um, climate and weather are different things. And um, this is a depiction of uh, excess deaths in Europe during a heat spell in 2003. You can see they had a hot spell in the middle of the year, uh, and a lot of people died. That's a weather-related event, and uh, that's very different from climate event. It's more important from the perspective of sometimes you'll see a politician standing in the middle of a snowstorm saying, see, there's no climate change. Uh, that's weather, uh, and it's important to make sure with the dialogue you're having is about the right uh, metric. Is the world warming? Uh, if you look at the data over the last uh, 13,000 years, it's striking that in the Holocene period, which is the period of time after we got out of the ice ages, the median temperature of the uh, Earth has only gone up or down one degree uh, centigrade over this entire period of time. So this includes uh, periods of drought, uh, a period of the um, uh, Little Ice Age. But what's happened since 1975 is you've already had a rise in temperature uh, that's as much as all of the change that's occurred over that period of time. And what's projected to occur between now and the end of the century is a further rise of three to four degrees, i.e. a total change of four to uh, five times greater than we've had in uh, the temperature on the surface of the planet over the last 13,000 years. And when you look about the 
inverse of that, where this all started, the Ice Age uh, actually came out from a period of time when the world was not that much colder than we're about to be warmer. So what is driving, what are driving this, these climate changes? We can break them down into um, uh, several different broad categories. The one that people often uh, talk about are uh, planetary factors, and these are the Milankovitch cycles. I'm not going into these in great detail, but they have to do with normal changes in the way the Earth orbits the sun. Uh, over periods of time, uh, the Earth may, uh, the axis of the Earth may shift slightly, and you have the pole uh, facing the sun more, uh, uh, more directly or facing away. And if it's facing toward the sun, you can imagine as you go around the sun, the summer will get hotter and the winters will get colder. The same thing is true about the tilt of the axis, um, or, or the um, um, tilt of the axis of the of the um, uh, Earth around the sun. Sometimes it's more elliptical than circular, and again, you can imagine how it might exacerbate seasons. Uh, but the big impact on overall global temperature isn't uh, um, isn't great. The bottom line is these have been going on for hundreds of thousands of years, and there really hasn't been, as you saw over the last 13,000 years, any real change in the overall temperature on the planet. So these are more distractions about, oh gee, it's something off the Earth that's causing this uh, than reality. So what happens on the Earth? The, um, uh, we need to look on the Earth to see what these might be. So they're natural planetary effects, which are real, and they have, do play a role. So when a meteor hits the Earth and you atomize a bunch of um, uh, particles that blocks the sun, it gets cooler. When you have a big volcanic event, same story. Uh, the biggest uh, planetary effect that we have year to year is El Nino, uh, and this is just a welling up of water in the southern Pacific uh, that leads to uh, warmer coast uh, in South America and then drives uh, drying in northeastern Brazil, uh, monsoons in India, and this goes on off and on. Uh, this is, again, uh, a, um, uh, in a lot of ways, kind of accumulated weather effect more than a total climate change that stays with us because this goes from time to time. This is important, though, because if you superimpose this on a general warming, the impact of El Nino and some of these uh, cyclic events will be more severe during their extremes. The main human factor is really boiled down to two things. How many of us are there? And how much energy do each of us use uh, in the course of a given day? And when you look at these two things, uh, these two factors, this is where um, the, the money is. This shows you the global population over time. Uh, you don't need a statistician to see that we've had a recent increase in the number of people here on the planet. The only period of time when we managed to have a uh, decrease for a short period of time, whoops, I'm sorry, was the, uh, was the period of black death. I guess you could say we haven't seen the new health care plan in place, but um, uh, it'll only have an effect in the U.S. Uh, and won't be able to get to the global um, population, at least in initially. Uh, if you look in parallel with that and look at energy use, you can see that energy use began to rise back with farming, when we began to be a little more active in uh, becoming uh, farmers and being active, active cultivators as opposed to just hunter-gatherers. But the big increase in the number of, of uh, megajoules per person uh, began to happen um, uh, in, uh, in mercantilism and industrialism as we, began to bend, as we began to burn more and more. And when you multiply this uh, graph by this graph, what you get uh, is a very big increase in the release of energy into the planet, much of it in the, um, in the uh, being driven by externally powered machines. 
uh, and this is the period that we're talking about. This is, these are thousands of years before the present. You can see most of this is occurring uh, in the last uh, 150 to 250 years. Now, the uh, major driver of, of this uh, temperature change is going to turn out to be uh, the, the, uh, the release of fossil fuels and the subsequent release of greenhouse gases. And you can see, again, things are relatively stable from 1900 to 1950. And then from 1950 on, we began to see an increase in the release each year of greenhouse gases. These greenhouse gases are released, and then they have a very slow turnover. So this really is a, an accelerating uh, release um, event uh, that is not just increasing in the rate of release, but it's accumulating from previous years. And as I showed you a few minutes ago, it was about 1975 that we began to see the increase in temperature that correlated with the cumulative effects of the increase in global uh, greenhouse gases starting since 1950. Now, how do the greenhouse gases have their effect? Well, solar radiation gets here uh, basically without much uh, interaction at all with the atmosphere, and then it hits the Earth, and then it, then it bounces back. And it's the infrared light that bounces off the planet's surface that then gets trapped by the greenhouse gases. Uh, and as the greenhouse gases trap this energy, we then begin to see the warm-up. So it's not the solar radiation or reflected light so much. It's the infrared light that bounces off after the uh, light has hit the planet and bounces back. Some of these greenhouse gases are more efficient than others in, in capturing infrared light. Methane, for example, is a very good one uh, at doing that. Some have longer half-lives uh, than others, and some can be mitigated uh, by being taken up by the, by the oceans. For example, carbon dioxide uh, is taken up by the ocean, uh, but the buffering capacity of the ocean uh, is beginning to be saturated as this has occurred over a longer and longer period of time. So the questions first we started with, it's warming, uh, and I think there's good evidence that human energy use uh, is driving a lot of this uh, as a function of the product of the number of us and how much energy each of us uses per day. So let's get on and talk about some of the more direct effects on how this affects humans. Now, I think one thing that's important to get from this is that it's a complicated story. Uh, what you have is a... Um, is a situation in which the uh, climate change occurs, and it takes a number of steps before you see health impacts, and particularly those on infectious diseases. But the pathways that you get there are multiple and overlapping. So there can obviously be direct effects in which your weather extremes are accelerated and there are uh, more air pollution and more heat waves. You end up with more uh, fragile humans and they're more susceptible to infectious diseases. Then there are the indirect effects in which uh, the uh, biophysical systems are being affected Oceans are rising, uh, the glaciers are melting, uh, you begin to have social and economic conditions deteriorating because of this. You, uh, that drives loss of uh, property, uh, loss of jobs, uh, people begin to be less nourished. And you have these indirect diffuse effects that get to the same place in parallel with the direct effects that are happening uh, just because of the weather itself. So some of the ways that infectious diseases um, uh, overlap with this uh, include the, ex the uh, expansion of pathogen range. Mosquitoes, for example, as we'll show you in a few minutes. Vectors themselves, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pathogen we'll get to in a minute. Mosquitoes are a better example of vectors. Uh, some vectors are more efficient as it gets warmer. And then obviously natural catastrophes that occur superimposed on climate change are also drivers of the spread of infectious diseases. 
So what about pathogen range expansion? Uh, probably the best example of this is, uh, are the vibrios uh, that grow uh, in the water. Gary Skulnik, who's down at Stanford, has done some of the best work in this area. Uh, but there are several things that uh, are important to think about with cholera, for example. Cholera, like many, v. cholera, like many bacteria, grow better uh, as the uh, temperature rises. Uh, v. cholera likes higher pHs, and v. cholera grows on chitin. Chitin uh, is a product of, um, of plankton uh, that flourishes uh, in the presence of nitrogen runoff from rivers. So uh, what happens with, uh, for example, in the, um, uh, in the uh, rivers in India as there has been more and more um, uh, agriculture uh, and more and more um, uh, fertilization of crops, as these nutrients get off into the water, there is a, uh, there's a runoff of green algae. This leads to an uh, increase in plankton, and you get blooms of plankton uh, in which uh, the Vibrio cholera then uh, flourish. This is uh, some examples of, of how the um, uh, phytoplankton and Vibrios have grown. This is a map of the uh, northeastern, um, uh, I guess we don't, Okay, this, as you can see on the, this is the uh, North Atlantic Ocean uh, with uh, Canada on the left and Europe on the right. These black dots are places where uh, temperature and algal bloom have been collected over time. And what you can see here is that uh, the, uh, the uh, temperatures and phytoplankton scores are relatively um, stable until about the last 20 years, and both have begun to rise over the last 20 years in several of these stations, and along with that, an increasing number of breakouts of these cholera uh, events. Uh, you can see that this is more present probably in the uh, U.S. Atlantic coast, uh, the northern European coast uh, over the period of time. I'm about to get a primer on how to heat the world up with my laser. Ah, oh, good. Thank you. This helps. All right. Thank you very much. All right. You can see that these clusters of events are occurring more and more rapidly, and this has correlated with uh, warming water and increasing uh, uh, presence of phytoplankton uh, and algae in these areas. If you look at uh, areas that cholera, uh, is, we're at risk for cholera now, the red zones are areas considered highly suitable. These are the areas we were showing you in that previous slide. But what's projected to happen between 2016 and 2100? You can see that we're talking about a much broader area of the globe uh, that those of us who take care of patients will have to worry about people coming with with diarrhea not being from uh, having uh, uh, been to the wrong, uh, to the wrong buffet uh, with respect to uh, uh, diseases like uh, Vibrio cholera. Vibrio parahemolyticus is a good example, too, of another member of this family. Uh, and this is something that's already happened in, of all places, Alaska. Uh, Vibrio parahemolyticus uh, has some of the same predilections for growth as Vibrio cholera. And there was a very nice description of an outbreak of Vibrio uh, parahemolyticus uh, disease with explosive diarrhea associated with an oyster farm uh, up in the, um, in the uh, Prince William Sound of Alaska. And this began as the water temperature, uh, the daily water temperature uh, in June. Uh, it, it got above this 15 degree cutoff at which this, these organisms like to grow. After a little bit of brewing, cases began to appear and you can see that over time, uh, this occurs in this oyster farm. And again, looking uh, at the temperatures taken in the uh, Gulf of Alaska over time, these are the mean water temperatures from year to year. You can see there's a steady increase. And you can imagine that 
this sort of temperature rise is going to make mussel farming something that will be dicier as a larger and larger area has more and more time uh, with temperatures in the uh, range uh, above 15 degrees. And again, tying this, uh, this outbreak to the, uh, to the water temperature, you can see Ju June and July, July and August, this is when it occurs. Uh, and as it gets warmer, this will expand uh, to early and earlier parts of the year uh, as uh, the water uh, temperature rises. Now what about vector range expansion? Uh, vector ranges uh, include um, things like ticks uh, and uh, uh, this is an example of tick-borne encephalitis in Sweden. Uh, these ticks uh, live for three years, and they can transmit tick-borne encephalitis uh, from uh, the, the, the virus itself goes from uh, uh, parent uh, to larvae to nymph. They can transmit it transovarially, and it's the nymphs as they come out and begin to feed uh, that begin to spread uh, tick-borne encephalitis uh, in uh, areas in which these uh, ticks are present. And this shows you uh, as uh, a correlation with temperature uh, and the tick-borne encephalitis in Slovakia. You can see that uh, the um, uh, altitude makes a big difference uh, in, uh, in terms of where uh, over time as it's gotten warmer, the uh, altitudes that are affected by um, uh, tick-borne encephalitis have risen. And this gets back to Sweden, showing that it's the spring temperature that seems to matter that uh, the uh, autumn temperature, the spring temperatures from 1960 to 83 have been relatively uh, stable. But after they began to rise, you can see the tick-borne encephalitis instance began to rise along with it. Dengue is probably another, is another great example of this, the vector here being uh, Anopheles aegypti. Uh, and it has a couple of different uh, effects, warmer, warming temperatures. First of all, that the, the, the mosquito needs to be at 18 degrees for the virus to grow in the mosquito. And as the temperature gets up beyond this, it grows faster in the mosquito, so the mosquito becomes infectious earlier in its life cycle. And so uh, if you look at where dengue has been in the last 26 years, this is the dengue zone. Uh, where is it projected to be over time? You can see that further and further into the north, more and more in uh, 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 so in uh, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and really all over uh, the Middle East. And this is really the same distribution you might expect for Zika because we have the same, uh, the same uh, pathogen uh, or the same vector spreading uh, it. And there's also an increase in pathogen and vector efficiency. Uh, this has to do, I've already kind of mentioned, that there are uh, higher replication rates when the water gets warmer, uh, like vibrios, mosquitoes, and ticks. And then as you have uh, increased population density, more people living closer together, the spread uh, for many diseases, particularly respiratory diseases and vector-borne diseases, uh, can be spread uh, more and more efficiently. Natural catastrophes are also um, important drivers of this. Uh, when you look at uh, the uh, natural catastrophes and climate and weather uh, conditions, they're disproportionately they're, uh, affected uh, people who are in the extremes of age, young people and old people don't do well with warm or cold temperature. People who are less affluent have less uh, sufficient housing to shield themselves from some of this. They're less likely to have food security, the homeless, for example. And immunocompromised patients are at increased risk as some of the infectious diseases that are, that are accelerated uh, by um, these conditions uh, are, um, are uh, spread around more effectively. 
You can imagine what's happened in Africa uh, as the agrarian society has been driven off the land in many parts of Africa with the sustained droughts. Uh, people move into the cities. Uh, this is Cape Town. This is Nairobi, uh, where infectious diseases are much more easily spread than when people are living at lower densities uh, in, um, in um, uh, farming and, and less uh, congested conditions. Floods. Uh, these are two pictures from Mozambique, the floods uh, in the last uh, decade that happened there. These were associated with outbreaks of both dengue and cholera that uh, uh, have moved through this. And you can again imagine how it, with refugee camps like this, conditions like HIV and tuberculosis uh, also can spread uh, more effectively. There are many other uh, sorts of natural disasters that have occurred, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but I think it's important to think about the diversity of infectious diseases that can be affected by this. Flooding, waterborne pathogens, uh, cholera, uh, E. coli, salmonella, viral diseases are also important. There have been many examples in uh, Indonesia after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, flooding uh, has led to outbreaks of leptospirosis uh, in both Brazil and Taiwan. Uh, there have been uh, episodes of uh, uh, measles outbreaks after Mount, the Mount Pinatubo eruption and people crowded into camps there. The earthquake in Pakistan was associated with the same. Meningitis, same story, waterborne disease we've already talked about. And then when there are natural disasters in which there is a lot of trauma, uh, you can have mucormycosis from uh, after, uh, other, after um, tornadoes and blunt trauma. There have been uh, uh, clusters of mucormycosis and limbs that were affected in the southwest uh, as we have droughts, uh, wider spread of coccidiotomycosis and other um, histoplasmosis and other diseases that may be soil-borne. And then interruption of services, uh, health services, whenever an outbreak gets going, you can imagine that there's much less an opportunity to interdict. And most of these factors are multifactorial. Uh, most of the time, many of these factors are multifactorial. Uh, this is a very nice um, summary of some of the speculation about Zika virus in which uh, El Nino drove uh, a drying and warm condition in northeastern Brazil where it first appeared. Uh, the, uh, when you get dry uh, temperatures, conversely, as you might not expect, mosquitoes uh, often do very well because rivers dry up, you have pools of water in which they replicate. People begin to bring water to their houses and cans, and mosquitoes, uh, like the ones that transmit Zika, uh, are the uh, mosquito uh, species that live very close to people in these cans around houses are very difficult to eradicate. Uh, as the uh, public health awareness of outbreaks is low, uh, Zika virus disproportionately affected people in lower economic conditions, uh, and then uh, people who are at risk for uh, conditions like pregnancy and, and immunocompromised patients are particularly affected. And then now that we're able to spread things around uh, with um, uh, our uh, most, effect most effective vector spreader, uh, if you're not beaten up on United, uh, <laughs> these, um, these pathogens can spread around the world very effectively. So to kind of get to where we are with this, uh, yes, energy use is doing this. And I think there are a lot of things that uh, are affected in many ways. I only went through kind of the tip of the iceberg, if you will, about the sorts of, sorry for that, that was bad, about the kinds of, of infections that uh, we worry about as the climate is changing. So what are the things, some of the things we can do? Well, obviously, uh, there are climate-independent interventions that uh, include uh, uh, being, being ready when something happens to mobilize and having uh, in place, for example, uh, in uh, locations that are vulnerable to this, the ability to detect an outbreak when it occurs, uh, vaccination for things like measles, for example, 
Food security is very important. Refugee tragedies, as we're seeing in the Middle East, are, are things that we should be able to do more about than we are. Uh, prevention and treatment of HIV uh, is important because obviously this itself can be spread in the kinds of conditions we're talking about, driven by some of these factors. And as more and more of a given population are immunocompromised, uh, other pathogens can also be spread through the same population. Then there are specific interventions, and these require knowledge of what's going on, uh, concerted action uh, in terms of reversing some of the drivers of climate change and political mobilization. To get the idea of knowledge, uh, this is one of the uh, uh, quotes that I really like a lot uh, about uh, science. The fact that the future may be like the past is what makes science possible while the fact that the future might not be like the past is what makes science necessary. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think that uh, the, uh, assault, uh, an assault on science would be very uh, um, uh, poorly planned, both from the standpoint of climate change and many other things we do. And this is a quote from, obviously, our budget director who is commenting on uh, the plans for the EPA. Uh, this is the... Uh, this is the uh, Trump budget, and when you look at the losers, uh, as he would say, the EPA loses 31%, then a whole host of other organizations uh, and, uh, and also um, regulations that would affect some of the things we're talking about are going to be changed uh, if the current plans by the administration are affected. Uh, the National um, uh, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration uh, is having a sub substantial cutback uh, NSF, uh, PEPFAR, USAID, uh, both having a big, big impact on, on AIDS. NIH budget is headed for trouble. The Fogarty Institute is slated to be uh, eliminated. Uh, all the uh, uh, energy goals we've been talking about also have, can have an impact in this area. Now, one of the things about uh, individual action that is uh, something that uh, is important to think about is that Obviously, each one of us uses energy every day, and if each one of us does a little bit less, less heat will be generated, that's great. But one of the whole challenges with both this at the individual level and at the country level is what was known um, as the tragedy of the commons. And this was uh, a, an English observation that if you have a bunch of farmers who have cattle living around a commons, each farmer thinks that, well, you know, uh, the commons is out there. I may as well have my cattle all go out there and eat because, at least for me, the more my cattle eat, the better. But uh, for the whole group, if everybody's cattle are out there, we're going to be in trouble over the longer term. And so in a lot of ways, we have to realize that we have this, this uh, tragedy of the commons in terms of each of us wanting to get our peace while we can, realizing that the, 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 the global uh, risk uh, is, is, uh, is shared. Uh, political mobilization in this era is critically important. These are some of the uh, active players, obviously, in terms of, of driving much of this. Uh, and when you think about our patients, and this is what I'm going to finish with, uh, we have a, a very active patient population that mobilized a number of years ago and were extremely effective uh, in bringing change to what we've seen today and talked about today. The new drugs we've talked about, the new approach to HIV, uh, all of that came and was driven by early mobilization. And it's time now to have the same sorts of mobilization uh, that we learn from our patients uh, about this and many other important values. And I would hope that we can learn from our patients about this as well, because they made a big difference in this disease and others, and I think that uh, over time uh, they can teach us about how to, to approach this. 
So uh, with the uh, last couple of these of, uh, Women's March signs, one of my favorite was this one, no wall can stop the rising tides, there's no planet D. Uh, this one's a little off target, but I still liked it. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, um, uh, I hope that uh, for you all, this is what the resistance looks like. So let me uh, stop there, and we'll have a couple of uh, closing questions, and we'll have time for some questions. So the first closing question uh, is, uh, if the current projections for climate change are realized, patients with HIV will not be adversely affected, not be as badly impacted as the general population, will be affected more severely than the general population. Uh, take it away, Maestro. Not resetting. That was Ring of Fire, in case you were wondering. So I thought the first few bars you could get that one. All right. So uh, are you going to able to reset it to vote? Or all right. If not, I think you get the drift of that. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire Thank you, Johnny Cash. All right, there you go. And the last one um, is, um, let's see here. Yeah. And uh, why will they be more adversely affected? Um, again, uh, using the DUEC rule, uh, make your guesses here. <laughs> and. Uh, We'll uh, see if they can reset this and get this one going, too. All right, this is supposed to be up on the roof. When the sun beats down, and burns the tar up on the roof. Anyway, so again, I think we have um, lots of reasons for our patients to be adversely affected and something that uh, we, um, I think, hope uh, we can avoid. So with that, I'll stop and be happy to entertain any questions or comments people have. Um, are you going to give it one more try? Okay, so I'll stop with... This. this is a very good book for those of you who want to read more. This was written by Anthony McMillan, who is an Australian scientist who put together a lot of this in one place. He unfortunately died uh, about a year and a half ago. The book was just published about six months ago, so he didn't even have time to have it on his coffee table, but it's a great book uh, in terms of understanding some of these relationships. So happy to stop there and entertain any questions or comments people have. Thanks very much. Um, the first question has to do with the fact that um, sometimes some of these uh, there's sort of uh, escalating effect. So the, the question has to do actually with the some of the depletion, some of these ecosensitive systems such as coral reefs. And once we lose that, other ecosystems now become at risk, and we lose those too. And so there's a sort of you know ping pong you know uh, um, effect. 
could you, you want to comment on that too, and rather than just focus, you know, is focusing on kind of the damage that can, might be accelerating um, by just one or two perturbations? No, I think that's a good point. I cut back on a fair amount of the preliminary uh, material here, but a lot of this is, uh, is self-amplifying. So, for example, as it gets warmer uh, and the polar ice caps melt, uh, there uh, is going to be more absorption of heat in the darker uh, polar seas uh, because uh, ice uh, reflects uh, light better than, uh, better than water. So you can imagine that uh, that will be an accelerating factor. Um, the, um, there are mitigators as well. Uh, as deforestation occurs uh, and land gets, uh, and you end up with kind of scorching white desert sand, uh, that reflects light better than forests. So you have things working in both directions, but the net effect of most of these things is that many of them are A, irreversible, uh, practically speaking, like dead coral reefs, uh, or B, uh, uh, self-accelerating uh, by having uh, uh, events occur uh, such as uh, polar ice cap melting and acceleration of absorption in areas in which the light used to um, uh, used to uh, reflect. If you take it and put it all together and, and get back to what I said earlier, and that is that as greenhouse gases are generated, you're getting both the, the effect of that year and the previous the previous years, you end up with an acceleration of effects from a given year because you're accumulating everything that's happened in the past. So just stopping all uh, global, um, uh, um, all release of, uh, of, um, of uh, these gases today, we'd still continue to have the uh, Earth warm for some period of time. Uh, much of the concern that I think um, hasn't been expressed effectively enough is that uh, we've already tipped the, uh, the cart quite a bit, uh, and if we get too much farther down the line, there'll be so much... Um, accumulated um, momentum from more and more greenhouse gases that no matter what we do, uh, we're going to end up uh, having a, a substantial increase in the temperature before anything we do can, uh, can mitigate it. There are lots of, of, there's a lot of work now trying to figure out how to, to get these greenhouse gases back uh, into um, places where they can be trapped, uh, how to release less of it. Uh, there's even talk about trying to change the reflectivity uh, of the planet. Uh, in early stages, and uh, it's um, uh, these are fairly extreme uh, circumstances, but we may be in very extreme conditions uh, in the next uh, uh, 40 to 50 years. Stephen Hawking last week in Time Magazine um, uh, <laughs> made a comment that bothered me quite a bit. He said, we have 100 years to find another planet, uh, the <laughs> way things are going. Uh, I hope he's wrong about that, uh, but uh, it was just a one-sentence comment that certainly got my attention. And, so, and don't think that Elon Musk is going to get us all to uh, Mars um, within the, the hundred years. Um, you know, getting to where the rubber hits the road. For example, there's a yellow fever um, epidemic going on in Brazil right now. And so, for for those of us who get asked travel-related questions, a you can't get yellow fever vaccine in many uh, sites. Um, what do we tell our HIV-infected um, patients who maybe want to go to some areas where there is yellow fever, for example, that is potentially vaccine preventable if you could get a vaccine and you're a candidate for it, or Zika virus and all that. What do you tell people? No, that's a great, great point because as a larger and larger area of the world uh, becomes at risk for some of these diseases. Uh, uh, our patient population is mobile and uh, they, like all the rest of us, want to see different parts of the world. It'll come up more and more often. And, uh, 
Yellow fever is a very good example of what's happening as it's moving from the forest into an urban cycle uh, in parts of, of South America. And uh, uh, you have to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm loath to tell people not to travel, uh, but I also have to have them understand the risk uh, of these places. There are some things obviously like mosquito avoidance and so forth that you give advice to everybody, but um, uh, that uh, is not, uh, I'd rather be, uh, there's no prep for uh, mosquitoes, unfortunately. Many of you may have heard about the advice that one of the Trump science advisors gave about how you can uh, protect uh, fetuses from Zika, and that is to have the husband sleep on top of the sheets and uh, attract the mosquitoes away from the wife. Uh, and uh, she's, um, she's now uh, actually uh, available for more advice for him uh, and um, was uh, the one who years ago um, got uh, a lot of, um, uh, of the NIH budget turned upside down because she propagated this fantasy that the needle exchange research going on in Eastern Europe was driving both prostitution and needle exchange uh, and, and the drug prob problem in, in Russia and got the Russians yelling at us and led to a big investigation of the NIH budget during the Bush administration. So we have a lot of really good science advice going on and I'm, I'm sure that um, they can help us out of this problem. Is Zika an example of the interaction of a lot of these factors? Because one of my understanding is that they're tracking um, uh, pregnant women in the United States who have evidence of Zika uh, infection. You know, the test is available through our health departments for people who, for women who uh, may be at risk and there are concerns from the clinicians, but that they haven't so far found, although there are not that many pregnancies, and it's a, there's as much congenital malformation and disease. Is that true? Or? No, I think the, there, there have been uh, a fair number of, of fetal anomalies here in the U.S. Yeah. from women who have acquired it abroad, and there have been some locally acquired cases. Most of them so far have not been among pregnant women. Uh, but Florida uh, and parts of Texas are high-risk places right. for Zika to spread, and uh, certainly we've had dengue there, and I think uh, you've seen what's happened in Puerto Rico, uh, where you have the problem of both uh, perfect climate and a collapse of the public health infrastructure uh, and uh, in a place where family planning is hard to get. So uh, I think that uh, we do need to pay attention to Zika because it has um, uh, really uh, the, the, the uh, neural defects, I think, can't be underestimated. The other thing that we're learning about Zika that we learned about Ebola is that the persistence of Zika virus in semen is uh, for a much longer period of time than we thought before. And so uh, women uh, whose sexual partners have been, for example, uh, in Brazil and places where Zika is uh, transmitted uh, might come back weeks to months later and transmit the virus to them with or without a symptomatic uh, uh, illness themselves because Zika is only symptomatic about 20% of the time. So Zika is, a, uh, is relatively sneaky in terms of its ability to find its way here and I think something that we need to uh, keep an eye on. And how are we doing that right now? Uh, and what's, what's the future of our keeping our eye on that? Well, right? we're, building, we're building a wall. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, enough said. So, anyway. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think this is a great uh, time to plug having a strong public health uh, response. And uh, in San Diego County, we have a very good public health department. Uh, we had a, um, one of our postdoctoral fellows went home to Venezuela and spent some time with her mother uh, last uh, February. She came back with Zika. Um, she diagnosed herself, and uh, we were able to study her pretty extensively. Um, and uh, when we went to study her, she said, I can't come to you. The health department has me quarantined. And uh, she lived about um, uh, probably um, 
five minutes from UCSD in Del Mar uh, in a nice apartment complex. But when you arrived there, they, they had uh, put uh, mosquito nets all over her windows and, mos and mosquito traps in the yard in front of the apartment complex. And the uh, neighbors were kind of looking uh, very <laughs> skeptically at what was going on there. Uh, but uh, I think those kinds of, um, of, uh, of um, responses are going to be important uh, as, uh, as cases pop up. Uh, in Florida, as you saw last year, there were a couple of bouts in which the disease, uh, the virus got beyond the first perimeter, but with a lot of spraying, it was controlled. Uh, but once it gets widely spread, it's very difficult to control this particular mosquito vector because this is not one that lives in swamps, so I guess Washington is safe. Uh, it's one that tends to live uh, in uh, tires and buckets of water and small amounts of water around your house, and it's very difficult to eliminate mosquitoes uh, in that close proximity uh, to, uh, to people. So it's one we don't really want to see get started here. Okay, I think our time's up. Okay, thank so thank much. you. Um, all right, so now.